the Advent season, we look at themes like hope and peace and joy and love, those things that are required for us in order to kind of wait longingly for the arrival of Jesus's return. And so during this time, for centuries, Christians have tried to look um, at the longing of the people in the Bible and the Old Testament who over years were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. And so we look at the prophecies in Hebrew scripture, and then we also look at the people and experiences that surround Jesus' birth in the Gospels. And so I have to admit this morning that um, for me personally, um, my own Advent reflection started a little bit early for me this year. Um, it actually started for me on election night um, in the beginning of November um, as I was waiting for the returns. And what I realized was, first of all, I'm not very good at waiting. Um, and I, I started to um, kind of have some anxiety because uh, I really was longing for um, to see relief in the injustice that I see around me. And I realized that I am not very good at waiting because I don't have much practice with really the long walk that it takes of both hoping for change and working for change at the same time. And so I decided to start that night um, my own Advent devotions that I had chosen to do this year, um, daily devotions that are based on spirituals. So these are songs that are written at the time of slavery by the enslaved. And so this particular devotional is called Rise Up Shepherds. It's by uh, Luke A. Powery. And these songs are really um, filled with both longing for change, but also they're filled with hope. Hope that really when you um, look at when and who was writing these songs, it's hope that seems beyond our understanding. And so that night, um, I started to read these devotions that are meant to be read one, one day at a time, and I went through most of them that night um, because obviously I struggle with waiting. And so um, I just chose to kind of fill up spiritually on these songs and their messages of hope. And when I, when I was finished kind of reading through them, I was comforted because I realized that this is a long journey and um, that no matter the results, that my hope was not changed and where my hope comes from was not changed. And so that's the reminder that we need today and this week during Advent um, and really all year round. How do we hold on to hope in our fractured world? How do we hope that things will change for us personally and in the world around us? Can we do it by our own strength? Can we do it out of sheer will, um, our own intellect? Or is there something greater than that, something that is harder to explain? So today I want to just reflect on some stories of followers of God who have found hope as they've longed for change. And so we're going to look at these stories. And before we do that, I just want to, um, to encourage us to remember that these are real people. And so we don't want to, like, sanitize their stories and make them all cleaned up just to fit what we want to talk about today. Um, we don't want to make these people one-dimensional. They are not just their struggles. They are people who live lives full of a range of emotions and relationships and experiences and journeys. But because Advent is all about the coming of Jesus, we are kind of forced to look at how Jesus came and arrived 
on earth. And so um, I think it's very easy that we've heard this story many times. Some of us have been raised with this story since we were children, that we've made it, um, it's the cleaned up version of the story, right? And we do this a lot with Bible stories, and, and especially this one. We focus on the happiness of the arrival of a baby. And many of us, if you've had a child, or you, somebody in your family has a uh, baby in this church, every time there's a baby, you know, it's a celebration. We're excited about it. And so um, that's kind of what we can do sometimes with the stories of Jesus' birth. So just consider some of the images that I easily found. Um, images that you will see on um, Christmas cards. Um, just, I was raised with kind of these images all over. Um, and what we see is a happy, clean, attractive family. I won't even get into the fact that they're white because <laughs> that's a whole nother thing. But, um, but in these pictures, like even this one here, I, it, you assume that it's happening, you know, that this is when baby Jesus was born. And look how clean the sheep even is. Like, like it is glowing white. So we just clean up this idea, and you see no sign of pain or fear or poverty or distress that there clearly was for this family that night. And so this morning, I want us to look again with kind of fresh eyes at how Jesus arrives. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in um, Luke chapter 2 all um, day today. So it begins in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And so that journey is about 70 to 80 miles, depending on what route he would have, they would have taken together. Most likely um, done on foot. You know, you see a lot of donkeys, but probably it was done on foot. Um, so at least a four-day journey for a mother who is about ready to have a baby. Um, a long journey. So in verse 5, it says, He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So if we look with fresh eyes, what we see here is a couple who don't have their own power to kind of determine how their son will enter into this world. That they are subject to the will of the government here, and they're displaced out of their home without really concern of what is best for them. And so they're told to leave their home, um, and during this journey and where they're going, it kind of puts Mary and her baby's delivery a bit in danger because she's not where she should be um, around her home. And then when they arrive in Bethlehem, no one will take them in. And instead, the, this is what they are told. There is no room for you here. And so they're forced to give birth in perhaps one of the most unsanitary places, uh, surrounded by barn animals. You know, not like today where you go in the hospitals and like every six feet there's hand sanitizer. This is like the most unsanitary place you can imagine. 
And so these images that we show of this perfect couple um, don't really show the mess and the pain and the danger of that night. And so um, why, why do we feel like we need to clean up the story so much? Why do we need to make these images so perfect and clean? Well, I, I was thinking about that, and I thought that maybe it's because we want to think that change happens without struggle, without pain, without mess. And I, I want that in my own life, and I think that's why I was struggling um, election night, because I'd like change to come without it costing me much and the people around me. And I want it to be clean and easy. But when you think about Jesus' birth, it certainly wasn't that. And I know that I've given birth three times. Like, I know birth comes pain. There's pain that comes with that. And there's struggle. And there's even a little bit of danger, any birth, but certainly um, in this time, that's true. And I'm going to tell you guys, it isn't clean. (laughs) It isn't pretty. There's a little mess involved with birth. And so I know this. And I think we all know that. In reality, we know that with change, it gets messy, and there's struggle, and there's pain involved in it. And so these images that we use of this perfect family, they don't really help us, right, have hope for change. What we really need is to acknowledge the pain, the injustice, the mess, in order to find hope that it will change. And I know that all of you know about pain, you know about longing and waiting for things to change, and most of us even know what it feels like when we feel like there's no room for us in certain places, what it feels like to not feel accepted or welcomed. And so we don't really need this cleaned up version of Jesus's birth. We need actually the messy and the heartbreaking story of Jesus's arrival because we desperately need to find hope, hope that things are going to change no matter how long we wait for it. And so I want to just look at a few people that we meet briefly in Luke chapter 2 after Jesus' birth. And they're both, both of these people are at the end of their lives. They're um, very old. And we see that they know about the prophecies of a Messiah coming. So they are Jewish. They've been raised their whole life hearing about a Messiah that would come and save the Jewish people. If you look through um, Jewish history and the Old Testament, you see that the Jews were under the um, authority of many different empires, one after another, and currently at this point when Jesus arrives, they're under the Roman government. But during that time, God sends these prophets to tell his people, I'm sending someone to save you over and over again. And so they're longing for things to change. And so there's two people that we meet um, who have been longing for that their whole life. But before we read their story, I want you to just try to think of um, the most precious older man and woman you know. So um, maybe that's a family member, maybe it's not, maybe it's a neighbor, a teacher, somebody even, you know, I really like Jimmy Carter. He's, you know, somebody that you watch um, their long life and you um, see them kind of go through their struggles 
And their struggles haven't made them embittered, like many older people can get, but they actually, it makes them softer and kinder and wiser. So can you think of some um, people like that that come to mind? And just keep them in mind as we read um, the story of Simeon and Anna. And so we're going to go to Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And it says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, that every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. So we see this um, all going all the way back to Moses, that Jewish firstborn um, males are supposed to be taken and kind of dedicated to God. So today we kind of do baby dedications. It's a very kind of a similar thing, only it would have required a sacrifice. And so what we see in verse 24 here, it says um, that the law of the Lord says to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So what that means here, I'll give you um, the notes is this is kind of the sliding scale that God established for people to give a sacrifice. So if you were very, very rich, then you could um, give, and you were expected to kind of give like a perfect lamb. But if all going all the way down in poverty, what you would give is a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And so here we see that God chose to send his son to a poor family that it was intentional for him to do that, that they are on the end of the economic spectrum. They are poor. So now we're going to meet Simeon here um, as they are going to dedicate baby Jesus in um, Jerusalem. So it says, verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. So he was waiting for the Messiah to come. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God. And he said these words, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. You may let me die. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother, they marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them, and he said this to Mary, he said, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What an amazing experience. And then verse 36 follows and said, there was also a prophet named Anna the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was very old, and she lived with her, husband's, her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. 
So we can um, just maybe assume that she got married around her 20s. There's a good chance she was even younger than that. Um, but she was only married for seven years, and then now she's 80, 84. So she's spent decades being a widow. And a widow at this point, um, they didn't get a pension. You know, they were just really at the mercy of hopefully having relatives who would take care of them. And so they were really on the edges of society. A woman like this, she's old and she's a widow, um, kind of unseen by society. But it says um, she never left the temple, but she worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about that child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Clearly, both of them realized who this child was, um, that he was the Messiah. And so there are a few things I just want to reflect on um, in these two interactions with Jesus. The first is just what a beautiful gift that God gives to Simeon, this promise that he's going to get to see the Messiah in his lifetime. It just strikes me as such an intimate gesture from God to this man that he would um, direct him through his spirit to see Jesus. And it strikes me as this intimate gesture because it's the God I know in my own life. This God who wants a personal relationship with me, who gives these types of gifts, these types of encouragement along the way. And I wonder, how might God be directing me with his spirit to places and people that he wants to show me his love and encouragement? And, you know, these little gifts that are just show how precious his love is for us. And I hope that is the God that you know also in your life. And so during this Advent season, I encourage you to consider what gifts is God directing you to see? And asking yourself this question, am I making room in my day to see the gifts God is sending me? Am I making room in my day to see the gifts God is sending me? Now, another connection for me was the promise that Simeon makes to Mary. While he prophesies of the hope that um, Jesus is going to bring to humanity, he also makes kind of a, a scary prediction to Mary, and that is that her heart is going to break uh, or be pierced. Her soul will be pierced. And we know that it isn't that she literally is pierced uh, by a sword, but she watches her son be pierced by a sword on the cross. And so that prediction, I imagine, um, is one that she remembered throughout her life, because I think we all can agree that um, maybe the most painful thing for us is not experiencing our own pain, but watching somebody we love go through painful things. And, um, and it's just a reminder, not only did Jesus' birth come with pain, but also the change that he brought came with pain, with Jesus' pain, but not just Jesus' pain, his mother's pain, and the people around him who loved him. And it's just a reminder to us um, who are wanting change for ourselves but also for others that, um, that a lot of times it comes with struggle. But that God can redeem those struggles and bring good out of it. And I, I want to be careful that you don't hear me saying God is causing the pain to bring 
um, good out of it. I, I want to be careful not to let you hear that, but that he can redeem all of our pain and struggles. Um, and that is especially comforting to me, um, not just for myself, but for people in my life, uh, my life who are going through really tough times, and I see them struggle, and I can't stop the pain. I can't make fix it for them. But the hope that God is going to use it for good is a comfort. And so we ask ourselves this question, what change or rebirth could God bring out of the pain you or your loved ones are experiencing today? I'm just going to give you a time to kind of think about that. So the last point I want us to look at is in Simeon's prayer, and it's that he understands that Jesus is, with Jesus' arrival, that, um, that this is the promise that for generations Jews were looking forward to. Um, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So don't miss here that Simeon knows that the Messiah, that Jesus is not just about his own hope. It's not just fixing his personal hope. And it's not even just a hope for his own people. It's a hope for the Gentiles too. Those people that for Simeon were always the others. They were the people you don't associate with, right? They don't know our God. And here, Simeon is saying, praise, praise to God, because this is the hope, not just for me, not just for my people. This is for all nations. And so with Jesus, it means there is now room for all to be in relationship with God. And that's why the angels, when they appeared to the shepherds, they said, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. So this good news of Jesus, it forces us to make room for other people. It's not just good news for us. It's good news for all people. And that means that no matter where you come from, what you've been through, what you look like, what you do, what society says about you, what politicians say about you. No matter what, the good news is for all people. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. It forces us to ask this question, this hard question. Who do we tell in our society, or even in the church today, there is no room for you here? We have to ask that question and repent of the answer. I found this Advent um, finding a lot of comfort in people on the margins of society. I think God was very intentional sending his son to a poor family. He was very intentional of picking Simeon and Anna to be the ones who said, this is the Messiah. People that were on the sides of society, you know, whose voices weren't heard. And so that is why uh, the spirituals are so comforting and so 
um, there's so many important lessons for us to hear in them and why I've found so much encouragement from them. The author of Rise Up Shepherds, he, he calls the spirituals musical lifelines to hope. Musical lifelines to hope. He says the voices of the enslaved, of the unlettered, the forgotten, the illiterate, are a way to learn from those whose voices are not often heard in society and the church. Thus, it is critical to learn from these marginalized voices in a season where hope is found in a humble baby Jesus born in poverty. It's an implicit call to remember that hope may be found on the edges of society. And I'll be honest, this kind of hope doesn't make sense to the rest of us. Um, as the hope of an old man that he would think that he would get to see Messiah before he died, that kind of hope doesn't make sense. I'm sure people around him didn't believe in that his hope. Or a widow who for decades devotes her entire life to worship and prayer, that's a hope that doesn't make sense. Hope that holds on year after year after year of pain and suffering. And there are people in this room that know that kind of hope. Hope that makes us more like God, more generous like God, instead of embittered. That doesn't make sense. But when you watch it, it is mysterious, and it is beautiful, and it brings life to people around you. So one of the spirituals that really stuck with me over the past several weeks is a song that set, um, is called Come Out of the Wilderness. And there's this phrase that uh, repeats over and over again. How does it feel when you come out of the wilderness? Come out of the wilderness. How does it feel when you come out of the wilderness? And so it's this acknowledgement, even by people who were enslaved at the time, that pain doesn't last always. That even our pain will end. That all of us experience times... Um, where we are suffering, where we feel lonely, where we even feel disconnected from God, but that that doesn't last forever, and that we will come out of that. And the end of the phrase, it says, um, how does it feel to come out of the wilderness leaning on the Lord? So this idea that as you're going through these times of struggle, you lean on the Lord, and you will come out. And how will you come out when come out of the wilderness. And one of, the, there are many, many refrains. I've listened to several different versions of this song. Um, but the one that was uh, most challenging and convicting for me was a refrain that says, well, I'll love everybody when I come out of the wilderness. Come out of the wilderness. I will love everybody when I come out of the wilderness, leaning on the Lord. Part of the hope that was sung by these men and women who were stripped of their dignity was a hope that when their suffering ended, that they would be able to love everybody. That is a hope that honestly shames my own faith. Um, it's a hope that uh, while we experience deep pain, pain that many of us can't imagine, um, still is able to hope for something bigger, that they would have a braver heart to love everybody. And it just shows us that hope in Jesus makes room for others. It makes room 
to welcome everyone. And I know we all want change, and we want our own pain to end, and we want the pain of others around us to end. And so it means we have to make room in our lives for this kind of hope. Hope that out of our pain and our struggle and the mess of this world, that change will come, that there will be rebirth, and it will be messy, and it will take struggle and pain, but it will come that Jesus promised us he will return and he will make all things new. And so this Advent, I just encourage you to have hope. Hope as we wait, longing for change, longing for Jesus' return. And so I'm going to end with uh, just Psalm 25, verse 4 and 5. It says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. And so I'm going to end just a little bit differently today. We're going to watch a, um, a visual prayer video, and it's written by a man named Walter Brueggemann. He uh, is a professor and um, theologian, kind of an expert on Old Testament uh, history and um, scripture, and so he uses kind of his knowledge to um, pray to God for God's return, and so we're going to kind of collectively pray this with him as we watch this video. We give you thanks for the babe born in violence. We give you thanks for the miracle of Bethlehem, born into the Jerusalem heritage. We do not understand why the innocents must be slaughtered. We know that your kingdom comes in violence and travail. Our time would be a good time for your kingdom to come because we've had enough of violence and travail. So we wait with eager longing and with enormous fear because your promises do not coincide with our favorite injustices. We pray for the coming of your kingdom on earth as it is around your heavenly throne. We are people grown weary of waiting. We dwell in the midst of cynical people, and we have settled for what we can control. We do know that you hold initiative for our lives, that your love planned our salvation before we saw the light of day. Amen. Mm -hmm.